We will be continuing on today in the book of Ephesians, and we will be in chapter 4 and verses 17 through 19. So turn there in your Bibles or tap there in your Bibles, whichever you have at hand. But get there and look at it. And just don't take my word for it that what I'm reading is what the scripture says. Also, if nothing else, sometimes the dyslexicness comes through and words get out of place. So know what the word says. But as you get to Ephesians 4, 17 through 19, I would ask you this question to consider. What is your relationship with sin? What is your relationship with sin? And just to give a definition of sin here for us, so we know what we're talking about. Sin is all the evil, all the things that we think. So what what begins in our minds, all the things that we say, so what we speak, and all the things that we do, the actions that we carry out, or the actions that we fail to carry out, uh, the things that God commands. Right, when we're talking about sin, we're talking about a standard. And we're talking the standard is set by whom? By God, our creator. And sin is everything that is not in accord with the standard set by God. So whether good or bad. Again, right? If we are called to love our enemies, when we fail to love our enemies, what have we done? We have sinned. When we lie, because the Bible says to us that we shouldn't lie, God says to us that we shouldn't lie. What do we do when we lie? We sin. So, right, I want us to make sure we understand what sin is at the outset here. So what's your relationship with sin? What is your relationship with sin? Do you hate it? Do you hate the sin that you see in your heart and in your life? Or do you love it? Is it something that is pleasing to you? something that gives you pleasure. And so why would you hate the thing that gives you pleasure? Do you think that maybe Christians and churches and pastors make a bigger deal out of sin than need be? Right, so it's kind of like what we hear in our culture all the time. Don't eat eggs. If you eat eggs, you're going to die. And then six months later, they say, you have to be eating eggs. If you're not eating eggs, you're going to die, right? And so we, we get this kind of in our culture, this cycle of making things bigger out, making things to be blow out of proportion. Um, I mean, if you were around for it back in, I think it was the 80s, we were all worried that we were going to run out of food and that the population was growing too fast and there would be no food left and the, the grocery stores would be empty and we'd all be dead of starvation. Hasn't happened yet, right? I'm not saying that there aren't some places that are impoverished and are starving, but we certainly don't see they made a bigger deal out of that than it really was, right? So is that what sin is? It's just a something that gets blown out of proportion. Well, one thing that I want us to understand and what we'll see today in our passage is that the problem that we have in our relationship with sin is that it is difficult for us to understand the problem of sin. So to say it this way, I want us to see in our passage today that sin blinds you to the truth, alienates you from God, and always leads to more sin. So sin blinds you to the truth, it alienates you from God, and it always leads to more sin. So let's see that today in our passage. I want to read for us Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 19. This is God's word. Receive it as such. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, 
alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. This is God's word. So in chapters 1 to 3, Paul uh, kind of, re- he really writes about the gospel, right? He gives us the gloriousness of the gospel, and he does it in various means and measures. He does it in praising God. He does it in thanksgiving to God. He does it in prayer to God. He does it in wanting the Ephesians to remember who they are in God. And then chapter 4 really begins the portion of this letter of instruction, of, of applying the truth of the gospel, as is described in chapters 1 through 3, into specific means and measures. So the application begins in chapter 4, verse 1, about calling us to walk worthy of the calling to which we have been called. So you, Christian, are to walk worthy of Christ's calling in your life. And I keep reminding ourselves of that every time we come back to chapter 4 is because that's what's forming the basis for Paul's discussion. So what we have here in our passage today is further understanding about what it means to walk worthy. So we need to understand that's the command and what's it look like. He wants the church, the people of God, to walk worthy, to be faithful. And that has a negative component, so things not to do, and also has a positive component, things to do. So today we're looking at the negative component. Lord willing, we'll look at next week the the positive component. But all this to say, how we live as Christians matters. So as we step into this, as we step into our passage today, we have to realize that. The Christian life is a distinct life. So let's begin first and see in our passage today, futility in verse 17, futility. And Paul begins by saying and testifying. And he uses both these words and they're kind of uh, redundant, right? Because saying and testifying, he means very closely the same thing. But he uses both these words, I I believe, because he's emphasizing this. He wants us to really pay attention. And notice what he's saying. He says, now this I say and testify in the Lord. So this is not Paul's best thoughts on this matter. This is God's thoughts on this matter. And again, I emphasize that for us because... It means we ought to pay closer attention to these things. Paul's not writing this for his own benefit, right? He's writing this for our benefit. So Paul's very serious here, and we should take take that uh, to heart. We should pay attention. And again, why this emphasis? Why does he emphasize this this way? And why am I spending time talking about his emphasis of this in this way? Because our natural tendency is to ignore, to not do what Paul's writing about here. Our natural tendency is to let this fade out of our mind and say, that's not a problem for me. But Christian, pay attention, sit up, wake up, and listen to what God has to say. This is God's word to us. And what does God want us to do, to know? To believe, to understand that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk. That you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Now, does this mean that we should no longer walk like an Egyptian? And the answer to that is yes, but that's just because it's not a great song, right? We don't do that. You know, what what Paul's referring to here, right, this idea of walking, we've actually already seen it before, back in Ephesians chapter 2. If you go back to Ephesians 2, verse 1 and the first part of verse 2, Ephesians 2, 1 and the first part of verse 2, 
and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And the discussion there is the same as the discussion here. So when Paul is writing and saying, don't walk as the Gentiles do, he's talking about their lifestyle. He's talking about how they live. The idea of walking here is that how they live, what their life looks like. So back in Ephesians 2, that, that looked like, if you are in Christ, that looked like you were living in trespasses and sins, in disobedience to God's command. And to extrapolate that further from Ephesians 2, right? You were following after the course of this world. You were following after the prince of the power of the air. You were sons of disobedience, destined for wrath. That was the pattern of your life, was sins and trespasses. Square peg, square hole. Right? It's a pattern of life. It's the course of your life. It was the aim of your life. So where's your life headed? Outside of Christ to death. And so back here in Ephesians 4, Paul's writing and saying that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Your life, Christian, should not be headed in the same direction as those who are dead. And it's no secret as to why this should be the case. Because if you are in Christ, you are no longer dead. So you shouldn't do the same thing that dead things do. What do dead things do? They rot and stink. What do living things do? Well, hopefully not rot and stink, right? But you have been unalterably changed by Christ. Or as Paul writes to the Roman Christians in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Romans 6, 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Right, so a different picture there, but the same reality. You have been changed by Christ. So how can you still live as though you have not been changed by Christ? Your life should be different than what it was before you were saved. So for some of us, that's easy for us to understand and imagine because uh, maybe we were saved later on in our lives. And so we, we have a context and we can look back and say, yeah, I remember what I was like before I was saved in Christ. For some of us, we don't have that experience. I was saved at a very young age. So, you know, in kindergarten, I wasn't going to shooting shooting heroin or anything like that. I don't have that experience of the context, the contrast that might come. But here's the thing. Even for us who were saved at a young age, what is, what is it that our, is, is what we are comparing ourselves to? Or what is it that we are looking to, to, to ask ourselves, am I living this way? It's the other Gentiles, right? It's the world around us. If you are in Christ, your life should be utterly different from those around you who are dead in their sins and trespasses. Right? So even if we don't have that contrast uh, from when we were not a believer to a believer, and we may not understand or remember that contrast, we still have the contrast between those around us, those we know who are dead in their sins and trespasses. And why does Paul emphasize this? Why does he write... You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Because here's the reality for the Ephesians. They're raised in a pagan culture. They were raised in a culture that did not honor God. And he knows that the tendency, the natural tendency for the Ephesians will be to do the same things as the people around them do. To do the same things that they used to do. And realize that it's not just the Ephesians who have this problem. It's us today that have this problem. Because we have been encultured. If you have grown up in the United States, you have been encultured in the American way. 
And we may not think that that's such a bad thing, but understand this. Being an American is not the same thing as being a Christian. If we are not careful, we'll bring that idea into the church. And indeed, we know that there are churches who have done this, who have brought into the church a methodology, a belief, a value system that says the best Christian is an American Christian. And what's an American Christian? One who believes in independence. One who believes that they are a hard worker and that they're relying on the sweat of their own brow. Now let's think through those things. That's just one aspect. Right? There's many aspects to being an American and what American values are. But let's just examine those three things. Those may make for good economic policy, but it's not true about who we are before God. Here's the thing. Are we independent? As Christians, are we independent? No, we're wholly dependent. We're wholly dependent on God. Are we hard workers as Christians? By the way, Christians, if you are a worker, you should be a hard worker. Because we work not unto our bosses or our masters, but we work as unto the Lord. But do we work hard for our salvation? No. We can't earn our salvation. Salvation is by grace through faith. And rather than relying on ourselves and pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps, we are dependent, not just on God, but we're also relying on one another. Do you realize that? That's one of the most difficult aspects, I think, of uh, American Christianity, the American values into that, that pull their way into Christianity in the church is that we believe that we don't need anyone else in our Christian walk. That's a lie. We need each other. Brothers and sisters, I need you to watch over my soul, even as I watch over your souls. Right? We need each other. We need to encourage each other. We're called brothers and sisters in Christ. Why is that? Because we're relying on our brothers and sisters. Or we're a family. So when you become a Christian, you're not just putting on American ideals and values. You're actually, actually pushing those things away for Christian ideals and values. They're not the same thing. Now, I'm not saying that there's no overlap. And what I'm not arguing is that there is no, no virtues in the American culture. There are some virtues. Uh, it is a virtue to be a hard worker. By the way, some of that trickles down from Protestant work ethic that our Puritan forefathers had because they believed in those things. And they understood that God called them to work hard. So I'm not saying that there's nothing positive, but what I am saying is we can't just adopt American values and think that we're a Christian. Because by the way, that's true of whatever culture we grew up in. That's true of whatever country we may find ourselves in. There will be some positive things about that culture, even if there are many negative things about that culture. But our goal as Christians so listen, this is no matter where you're from, no matter what tribe or tongue or nation you're part of, your goal is not to grow up to be the best of your nation, the best representative of your culture. Your goal is to be the best in Christ-likeness. And Christ was an American. And he wasn't Britain. And he wasn't Spanish. If anything, we'd say he, right? What was he? He was Jewish. But right, that's not what we're aiming for. Even in that, we're not aiming for Jewishness. We're aiming for Christ-likeness. We're aiming to be perfect as God is. So we are to be.
right? So, so what we're looking at here, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Our natural tendency is to go after our culture and to be what our culture is. And so we need to hear this admonishment. We need to hear this warning. We need to hear this command that we no longer walk as those who are dead in their sins and trespasses. We don't live like them. We don't pattern our lives after them. If you look at us, the pattern of our life should look like Christ, not American. And again, whatever other nationality. I'm going to fix on fixate on American because that's what we are here, right? And that's where we live. But this applies, transcends national borders in that sense. And why should we not walk like them? Well, Paul continues and he writes, right, in verse 17, in the futility of their minds. So how do the Gentiles live? How do those who are outside of Christ live? In the futility of their minds. Now, this word futility is actually translated in the King James Version as vanity. And if you go to the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Greek version of the Hebrew Bible, go to the book of Ecclesiastes, you'll find that the same word used here for vanity or futility is the same word that the Greek version of the Old Testament uses in the book of Ecclesiastes. So why do I say all that? Because what is vanity? In the book of Ecclesiastes, this idea of vanity is like grasping smoke. So what I want you to do later today, as you're cooking, as you're before the fireplace, I guess, I don't know how many of you have fireplaces that you just sit before. And why don't you go and try and grasp some smoke, see what happens. You're probably not going to get anything. And if you do, what happens as soon as you open your hand, what? There's nothing there. That's what vanity is like. That's what futility is like. It's emptiness. It's meaningless. There's nothing there. You can grasp for it, but you get nothing with it. So this idea here, right, of, of futility, they, they walk in the futility of their minds. Their minds are empty. There's nothing there. They are vain in their thinking. Right? The, the place from which their actions spring is a place of emptiness. What motivates them and here's, here's the reality, right? What motivates them is not some deeper drive or purpose. And again, that's something we talk a lot about in our culture. If you follow uh, any kind of productivity blogs or, you know, those kinds of things, you'll often find we got to find our purpose. We got to seek our purpose. Well, there's happiness in our purpose. But the reality for those who are outside of Christ, their purpose is emptiness, vanity. And why is their mind one of vanity? Well, let's continue in our passage, and we'll see next in verse 18, ignorance. So the second thing I want us to see today is the ignorance. And Paul begins, and he writes, right, not only do they have emptiness in their minds, but they are darkened in their understanding. Verse 18, they are darkened in their understanding. And then, added to that is that they are alienated from the life of God. And then he qualifies that alienated from the life of God. He gives us two reasons for that. The first is because of the ignorance that is in them. And the second is due to or because of their hardness of heart. So they're darkened in their understanding. They're alienated from the life of God. These two aspects here. And so as we've gone along, you may have gotten hints here of Romans 1. And so I want us to look at that more fully. Let's look at Romans 1. I want us to read some verses. It may seem familiar to you. What Paul writes here in Ephesians sounds familiar to what Paul writes to the Roman church. Romans 1 and particularly, I want us to look at verses 21 to 25 and, and see if you hear some of the same language as what we have in our passage in Ephesians 4. Romans 1, 21 through 25. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became 
futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So Paul writes to the Roman church, right, that the Gentiles knew God, right? They could have known God, but what did they do instead? They did not honor God. They didn't give him thanks. Instead, they brought vanity into their minds. They adopted futility. They sought after emptiness. And how did they do that? through the worshiping of creatures, through the building creation of images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things as a grasshopper god. It's futility. And instead, their, their hearts were darkened. And they went after folly, foolishness. And what's the result of all this? God gives them up to the lust of their hearts to impurity. And that's important. We'll touch back around on that in the next verse. But for here, I want us to just see, we ought to remark that those who are outside of Christ are blind to the truth of sin. They don't see it. They can't see it. Their minds, their hearts, who they are is darkened to the truth. They don't want to see it. Uh, we could look at 1 Corinthians 2 and see how there isn't there, Paul writes to the Corinthian church that there are people who are natural and there are people who are spiritual. And the people who are natural don't understand spiritual things. I, I, I think I've had this conversation with some of you before and I know some of you understand this and I've seen it. That there are people we know who are even have been in churches, been part of churches for years and years and years, and they don't understand basic spiritual things. And in one sense, it's frustrating because it's like, dude, you should know this. But in another sense, it's, it's saddening because, dude, you should know this. It's a spiritual thing. Why don't you get spiritual things? And then you come across 1 Corinthians 2 and it's, you don't understand spiritual things because you're not a spiritual person. I'll let you read that for you later. Uh, that's verses 12 through 14. You can look at that in 1 Corinthians 2. And that's, right, so to add into this, right, there is, their minds are futile, their minds are empty, they're darkened in their understanding, and they're alienated from the life of God. And this is to say, right, they are dead in their spirit. They don't have spiritual life. They have no life within them. We can say they don't have eternal life. We know that to be the case, right? They don't have the life of Christ in them. And there are those who do have life, right? The Christian has life. Paul labors in, in chapter um, in previous chapters here in Ephesians, right? To say, like at the end of Ephesians 2, verse 19, for instance, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Right? If you are in Christ, you're not alienated from the life of God. You are given life in God. You're given life in Christ. So let's go back and, and take what Paul has written in, in verse 17 here. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Are you beginning to understand why that has to be the case? Why that must be the case? Because Christian, you're categorically different from the other Gentiles. 
You're categorically different from those who are outside of Christ. How can living things live like dead things? And by the way, if that's a head scratcher of a statement, good. (laughs) Scratch your head over it. That's the point. But let's go on. Let's continue on. Let's see and build upon our understanding and say, why is it that we can't live in sin anymore? They are alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. So the first aspect of this is right there, ignorant. There's a deficit of knowledge. And one commentator about the, on this uh, verse points out that in Jewish thought, ignorance is linked to sin. Right? So you are ignorant in sin. Or maybe we could flip it the other way too and say you sin because you're ignorant. And this is not Paul saying that what these people need is education. Again, I will just pause here and say in our culture, that's a popular refrain. The thing that we need most in our, in our country is education. We need good education, better, better education. Everybody needs to be educated. And if we we're all educated, we'd all be better off. Education is good, but notice here, is education going to fix the futility of their minds? Will that fix the futility and the darkening of their minds? No, because what's the second aspect here? So the first is because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Because of their hardness of heart. So the deeper problem is a hardness of heart. And this phrase means that the people are set against the word of God. It's a disposition. It's an attitude of our soul that says, despite what God may say about an issue, I don't care. I have my feelings. I have my opinions. And that's what's first and foremost, in God, I don't care. That's what hardness of heart is. So if even if we did teach everyone about who Jesus was, that doesn't deal with the deeper-rooted issue, their hardness of their heart, the hardness of their soul. So again, to, to say it this way, a man can hear the warnings from God about the judgment to come and not care. The preeminent example of this, of course, in the scriptures is found in the book of Exodus, right? If you go to the book of Exodus, and again, time fails us this morning, so we won't go and look at it fully. But if you go to the book of Exodus and you follow the track of Pharaoh of Egypt, the Pharaoh of Egypt, and what happens to Pharaoh? He hardens his heart. God warns him through the prophet Moses. God warns him. God displays his judgment on them. Pharaoh seems to repent. Wakes up the next morning a different man. Or really rather the same man. Because then he rescinds everything that he said before in his repentance. He was unmoved. He heard God's warning again and again and again and failed to heed it, even to the point of losing his firstborn son, even to the point of losing a great number of his army by chasing after them into the Red Sea. What's interesting about this in my, in my readings this morning in the Bible I came across in 1 Samuel chapter 6. And the background of 1 Samuel 6 is that the Ark of the Covenant has been captured by the Philistines. The Philistines have taken the Ark of the Covenant into their lands. 
and plague has broken out among them. Judgment has come upon them. Also, you get that uh, somewhat amusing but just amazing scene of uh, they place the Ark of the Covenant in the temple of their god Dagon. And in the morning they come in and Dagon's bowing before the Ark. And then when they put Dagon back up, the next morning they come in and not only is Dagon bowing before the Ark, but his hands are cut off and his head's fallen off. Because God was judging them and judging the false god that they thought had won. But at any rate, First, first Samuel 6, what we find is that they come together and the wise of their, of their group, uh, verse 2 says, The Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us what, what, with what shall we send it to its place? Interestingly enough, go down to verse 6. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? It's interesting that these pagan diviners and priests get the point of what happened in the Exodus. Why should you harden your heart? Disaster has overtaken us. It's because we took the ark. Send the ark back. Don't harden your heart. Don't be stupid is what they could say, right? Don't be stupid. Hear the judgment and the warning of God. So go back. The problem of the other Gentiles, the problem of those outside of Christ, they have empty minds that seek no deeper purpose. They are darkened in their understanding. They are blind to the truth of their sin and to the truth of God. They are alienated from the life of God. They have no spiritual life. And why is that? Because they're ignorant about who God is and ultimately because they are dead set against God and his word. We could fast forward, by the way, to the book of Revelation and see this in action. When God judges the people in the book of Revelation, the judgment that is yet to come on this earth, what does it say? Even despite suffering under the wrath of God, the judgment of God, the people don't repent. They are hard in their hearts. And they say, I'm not buying it. I won't believe. So the problem of the futility, the problem of the darkened understanding, is not just an education issue. It's a whole person issue. It's the very heart and soul of a person that is set against God and His Word. And we can survey the, the state of America right now, and I, I, I feel that we are here. We're back in Romans 1, seeing God giving a people over to their sin and to judgment. There are so many areas in which we are bearing the judgment of God because we don't honor him and we don't thank him and we're futile in our understanding, we're darkened in it, and we are alienated from God's life. We are ignorant and hard of heart. We are witnessing in our culture God's wrath against sin. We're given over to folly, foolishness. And we, brothers and sisters, should not be surprised when the world around us cements itself in folly and sin with a hardness of heart that no man can break. Because ultimately that's the issue, right? No man can break the hardness of their own heart. The problem of our hearts and soul is deeper, far deeper than we can muster to change. And herein lies another issue with American culture. We think we can fix it ourselves. Let me just go on YouTube. I'll find a video about how to fix the problem of my hard heart. We see the proliferation of self-help seminars, influencers, and books, and so on that promise to give us the answer to our problem. But we can't fix ourselves. You can't fix yourself, friend. 
Sin blinds you to the truth. Sin alienates you from the life of God. And you are dead. And guess what dead men don't do? Anything that a living person does. So what's the answer? Jesus. Right? Christ Jesus. The answer is the Son of God who came that men might live. Jesus came to reconcile God and man, that there may not be alienation any longer. And this he did on the cross. Right? He poured out his life's blood that you might live. And the Bible calls you to answer. It calls you to repent, to turn from your sin and to God. Again, this is not something that you can do on your own. You're wholly dependent on the mercy of God. So you may say, well, God may be merciful, but he won't be to me. The Lord chooses the weak, the despised, and the things that are not. I'm saying this to you. God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. That's who God is. That's not who he is sometimes. That's not what he puts on and takes off whenever he feels like it. That's who God is. That's his name. There is mercy enough in Christ, even for you. But you also may say, you don't know my sin. Well, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Christ didn't die for the godly and the righteous. There, and I'll give you a hint, there is no such person. Christ died for the ungodly. Christ knows all your sin, and he died on the cross for his people's sins. And Christ's atoning work on the cross doesn't just cover past sins or present failures, even those things we have yet to commit that is not in accord with God's word, Christ's death covers. And when God has mercy on a man and saves him, he knows the whole of that man's life. Every foolish act and unkind word. And his mercy is not dependent on your fidelity, but his. And that's really important, so I'm going to say it again. God's mercy is not dependent on your faithfulness, but his. God is merciful, and he is merciful to save. And if you call out to him today, this very hour, he will save you. How sweet and many are the inducements in the scriptures for wicked sinners to come to God in their need. And we don't have time to unpack them all, but understand that they're there. God calls sinners. Christ Jesus came into, the save, into this world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. And if God could save me, he can certainly save you. So don't hesitate. Don't delay. There is ample grace for you. Go to Christ Jesus this very day. Don't remain in futility. Don't remain in ignorance. Don't become calloused. And that's the last thing I want us to see in verse 19, calloused. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So what happens to the heart when it stays darkened, ignorant, and hard? It becomes calloused. It becomes unable to respond in the ways that it once did. Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 and 2. 1 Timothy 4, 1 and 2. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. And did you notice that last part? Whose consciences are seared. It's a similar idea to what we have here in the book of Ephesians. It's the kind of person that is unmoved by their sin, by the sin they see around them. Is a person not bothered by the wrong that they do, right? It's, it's the man who looks at ever more perverse kinds of pornography and is unmoved by the slavery of the men and women who are in it, 
And just understand that the next time, if you're not so callous, ask yourself this question of the, the people on the screen that are entertaining you. Are they there willingly? Did the woman really consent to this? Is this because things are going well in her life? Who is exploiting this man or this woman? Because that's the reality. That's the reality. What does the callous heart look like? It looks like the woman who is so used to lying that she doesn't even realize she's doing it anymore. It just flows out of her. When she says something, it's a lie. And I don't know if you've ever actually known a person like this. I know I have. If you've ever known a person like this where you can't trust anything that they say because everything that they say is, is built and based in, in, in lies. What does the cow's heart look like? We could go back to what Paul writes to Timothy. It's the so-called teacher or preacher who gets up and says the things God doesn't say and approves of the things God does not approve of but says he does. These are men and women who are devoted to defeat deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. I don't know if you ever think about that, but the false teachers who get so much airtime in our culture, they're not neutral. Right? Sometimes I think we get the idea, well, they're kind of harmless. You just have to put them on, in the corner. They devoted themselves to the teaching of demons. Do you realize that? They're under the sway of demonic influence. They're not harmless. And what's worse is what they proclaim, what these who seek out filthy lucre and, and unfaithful living in the light of God's word, what they proclaim is lies and their consciences are seared. They don't care that it's a lie. They don't care that it's a teaching of a demon. All they care about is the check they get or the notoriety they get or whatever. And what's important to note here, right, is that Paul writes about these Gentiles, right? They've become callous. And what happens to the callous heart? They have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy. Isn't that an interesting word? They're greedy to practice every kind of impurity. They're greedy for it. They want it. They love it. They seek after it. It's the thing that drives their mind. They're greedy for it. And notice that Paul writes that these Gentiles have given themselves up to sensuality or licentiousness, indecency, impurity. But back in Romans, Paul writes, Romans 1.24, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Or we could go down to verse 28 of Romans 1. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. So who does the giving? God or themselves? And the answer is yes. Both. We might say that what Paul describes in Romans 1 is God giving a people up to the very thing they want. Right? So understand that. God in Romans 1 is not giving a people over to evil. He's giving the people the very thing that they want. And Ephesians 4 here tells us that, right? That they give themselves up to every kind of impurity, greedy to practice it. That's what they want. They are alienated from the life of God and they are doing the exact thing that they want. And we have to realize that, that the problem of sin is not that we do so here or there. The problem of sin is that it always leads to more sin because it's deep rooted in our nature. And the types of sin considered here, right, isn't is in view certainly sexual immorality, but it's that's not the only sin. Because notice what Paul writes: they're greedy to practice every kind of impurity, every kind of impurity, not just sexual immorality, but every kind of impurity. 
Outside the grace and mercy of God to restrain us, we are given over to sin and more sin. Sin always wants more of us. And here's the twisted thing about the toxic relationship we have to sin. We always want more of it. And even though we may hear the warning of Scripture, go back to Romans 1 again, right? That those who practice such things must die. We don't care. We're hardened in our heart and said, well, what do we do? We applaud those who do likewise, who do just like us. Indeed, you might say, we come up with whole months where we celebrate and, it, and glorify our sin, the judgment of God. The problem of sin is that this is what it does to us. We don't care about the things of God. We are hardened in our heart. We become calloused. Our consciences are seared, and we just don't care anymore. We don't care about what God says about sin. And while God give, may give people over to their sin, he only gives them what they want, which is sin, what they desire. And so when we pray to God for his mercy upon us and his children and our children, may we ask God for tender consciences that recoil from the depravity of sin into which we are born. Sin blinds you to the truth. It alienates you from God, and it always leads to more sin. And so, brothers and sisters in Christ, I can say this to you this morning without equivocation, without averring, without hesitation, without lessening, that you must live differently than those around you, those who are outside of Christ. It's the clear teaching of Scripture. It's what Paul is saying and testifying to in the Lord. It's not a question of if we should live differently. It's how we should live differently. And that's what Paul is going to, by the way, labor to tell us in this, this letter. Paul labors to tell us these things. Do you realize that your relationship husband to your wife, wife to your husband is different because you're in Christ than the relationships of those who are outside Christ? Do you realize, children, that your relationship to your parents is different because of the work of Christ? To live in sin to live as the Gentiles do is to not understand the radical change that has transpired in your life if you are truly in Christ. And some of you may be drowning in sin and you cannot blame others. You must confess your sin and run to Christ Jesus and trust in his grace to help you. You must pray to God and ask, Romans 8, God, give me your spirit that I may put to death the deeds of the body. And don't miss what Paul is doing in this passage. Right Back in Ephesians 2, Paul describes the change in the Christian as one that has already occurred. You were dead in trespasses and sins, but God. And here what Paul is pointing out to us is, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You are made alive in Christ, but no longer walk as the Gentiles. So what Paul says is accomplished back in Ephesians 2, he's here saying it's yet to be accomplished in Ephesians 4. And Paul's not schizophrenic and doesn't have a, a, a differing mind on this. What he is saying is that this is the reality of the Christian life. God has changed you completely. Christ will present you before the Father as holy and blameless and above reproach. And yet there's still work to do here. So we need to wake up each morning and remind ourselves of this. Today is a day to not walk like those who are dead. Or to state it more positively, because the scripture does. Today is a day to walk worthy of my calling in Christ. 
say that in the morning. Pray that in the morning. Ask God to help you in that in the morning. And it's true because you have been changed forever. But we live in that tension of the completed work. And yet here's our hope in all this, right? Philippians 1.6 And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. So rest in the finished work of Christ. Trust in his grace. And when you sin, go to him and confess your sin. He is faithful and just to forgive you. And when you catch yourself walking like the Gentiles do, repent. Turn back from it. And what this means for us in the church is that we have to care about how we each are living. We need to encourage one another with the grace of God to do better and to strive for Christ's likeness. We need to pray for one another to this end. Pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ. God, give him strength to put sin to death today. Pray for your sister. God, give her the light of Christ to lead her today. Don't let her be darkened in her understanding. God, may our conscience not be calloused. But when we sin, oh, may it break us. And may we weep over it. Even the smallest of sins. That we would see the horrors of sin and flee from it. The church, and that means you, Christian, is to come alongside one another and to help one another fight against sin. We need to heed the words of the book of Hebrews in Hebrews 3, verses 12 and 4, 12 through 14. Hebrews 3, 12 through 14. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So exhort one another. How long should we exhort one another? Well, it's today called today. And it's a day for exhorting one another, encouraging one another, stirring one another up to love and to good works. Because here's the reality, right? We have to confess this as Christians. Sometimes our hearts are cold. Sometimes our hearts are slow to believe what the scripture says. Listen, sometimes we receive the discipline of God over our sin. And then we go do the same sin again. So... We need exhortation from one another. We need encouragement from one another. We need to stoke the flame of God in one another. And the difficult side of this for us as a church, right, is that there may be an occasion where we have to practice church discipline. And when I say all this, by the way, I'm not saying that we need to police one another's behaviors because that's not what the scripture calls us to. We're not here to police and say, oh, you said a lie. We're going to church discipline you. But there may be occasion that, that we have to practice church discipline on one another. Because here's the reality. We didn't join a club. This isn't a club. This isn't a Costco membership. We don't sell things in great quantities, right? But when you join Redeeming Grace Fellowship... There is a mutual testimony given to each other and to the world that we are in Christ, that we have been changed by Christ. And if you are living in such a way that calls that witness, that testimony into question, it has to be addressed. Not so much for the sake of the witness of the church, by the way, although that's not unimportant. But first and foremost, for the sake of your soul. Because if you live in unrepentant sin, your soul is in jeopardy. And the reality is you may not have made a true confession of Christ. 
And the last thing that we would want for you, the last thing that I would want for you, is for you to be cast forever from the good presence of God into hell. So we have to recognize, right? We must recognize that being in Christ means living differently. It's not a question of if, it's a question of how. There has to be a difference between you and the rest of the world around you. And if there isn't, then you may not be saved. You may still be dead in your sins. And on the day of judgment, listen, this is from the Sermon on the Mount, right? Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, didn't I prophesy in your name? Didn't I cast out demons in your name? Didn't I perform many wonderful miracles in your name? To which Christ will respond, depart from you, workers of lawlessness. So, right, we live in the reality that it's possible for us to deceive ourselves. It's possible for us to deceive one another, but we will never deceive God. And so... This is not all legalism, by the way, wrapped up in a different packaging. Because in your striving for the holiness without which you will not see God, that's Hebrews again for you. We are not trying to earn salvation. But rather we confess that we have been changed by God. And so naturally, or perhaps better, supernaturally, we will live differently. Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 1 John 5.18, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who has been born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. So to this, we have to say repent, right? Repent of our sins. We have to repent of our sins every single day. Because understand that sin is fundamentally lying to you. Sin lies to you. Sin destroys your relationship with God. It doesn't build it up. It alienates you from him and from life. And it destroys your relationship with one another. Sin always turns on itself because it's a self-consuming disease of the soul. In sin, you are dead. And you may not think of yourself that way, but such is the delirium that sin imposes on its host. It makes us think, I'm alive, when in reality we're dead. And your only remedy is Christ. Your only hope is God. You can be saved by the grace of God. But it takes turning to him, right? It takes confessing the truth of your sin, the truth of Christ, and believing that confession. So if you've never done that before, I would encourage you to do that today, this day. Heed the warning of the scripture. Don't let this day pass because of the hardness of your heart. And if you are in Christ, praise God for that and pray to him and ask him, Lord God, am I deceived by sin? Go to him and confess. He loves his people. Let's pray. O Father in heaven, we ask for your mercy this day. God, we ask for your mercy because we know sin deceives. God, we know that in the hardness of our hearts, uh, we are slow to believe anything that you say unto us. God, we don't want to believe that what you call a sin is sin. Father, we confess that without your grace and mercy upon us, we're dead. Father, have mercy. Father, give us consciences that feel the, the terror of sin. That may cause us to fly to you. That may remind us afresh of the work of Christ Jesus who died for sinners. Father, give us your spirit to understand what you have done in Christ. That you made him who knew no sin to be made sin on our behalf. That we might be the righteousness of you, O oh God. O oh Father, 
Pour your spirit out upon us. Help us to live differently. Help us to walk differently in this world around us. Father, we confess it's difficult because of our own nature. Father, we confess it's difficult because we look different from those around us. Father, we confess it's difficult. But Lord, give us strength. Give us courage of heart to stand against the tide of this culture that we may honor you as God, that we may love you as God, that we may love one another even as Christ has loved us. For the sake of your glory and for our good, we pray these things. And Father, we pray for those we know who are dead in their sins, who are hard of heart. Father, we pray that you would have mercy upon them, that you would send your spirit upon them, that they would see. That they would no longer be ignorant. That they would no longer not care about their sinfulness. But, Father God, that they would feel the full weight and terror of the reality of the judgment of their sin. But, Lord, that you would have yet more mercy. And not only let them feel the judgment that is to come. But that they would see and behold the Lord Jesus. Who bore judgment for sinners God we thank you for Christ we pray this in his name amen